What is up, everybody? This is Ryan here, Muthi Scale Up Show. I got Patrick Campbell on today, who is the founder and CEO of Profit Well. Just recently sold to Paddle and had an awesome exit there, but is still involved with the company. Um, something really unique that you're going to love about this that I've never heard anybody talk about. He drops like five bombs in terms of pricing strategies you could do to increase revenue um, without even getting more clients or anything. So truly unique strategy. And then his go-to-market, he gives a, a three-step stack that anyone can leverage, but it's really unique and it's absolutely blowing up. And it's truly how I found him um, to lead to massive inbound people begging to use your service. So you're not going to want to miss this one. Patrick blew me away. I think he'll blow you away as well. Check it out. How do you grow like a VC-backed company without taking on investors? Do you want to create a lifestyle business, a performance business, or an empire? How do you scale to an exit without losing your freedom? Those are the questions, and this show is the answer. Welcome, everybody, to the Scale Up Show. This is your host, Ryan Staley, and I have a very special guest with me today. I have Patrick Campbell. Patrick is the founder and CEO of ProfitWell which is a suite of tools that plug right in a subscription management system, which is pretty cool because like it optimizes pricing, ensures re- revenue recognition. He bootstrapped and then just recently sold for a great number. So Patrick, welcome. Happy to have you on the show, man. Yeah. Pumped we could finally do this, man. Appreciate you having me. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Um, you know, I love, I love, it was kind of funny because I think it kind of happened because I came across just some of the clips that you're doing on social. And I'm like, dude, you're doing an amazing job. And the more I looked into your company, I, the more I was impressed about the industry. So super excited because it's going to, I think you can provide a massive value um, to my audience based on what you guys do. So love to get into it. So let's do a real quick revenue rundown just so everybody has some context on you, your company, kind of the stage you're at and what you guys do. So real quick, what kind of revenue range are you in? Yeah, so we're. Uh, it's funny because now, now I have uh, a board and such that I have to, uh, you know, I have to be careful what I say. Uh, but previously, um, <laughs> for context, for those who don't know, we just sold. This is why I, I rescheduled on Ryan probably like seventeen times here. But uh, yeah, so prior to the sale, we were a bootstrap company doing, you know, into the eight figures in revenue. Um, Post sale, we're doing, uh, you know, somewhere between eight figures and nine figures in revenue. I think that's 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 what I have to. Uh, have to say at this particular point. Yeah. It's an interesting question, right? Like, and it's not that interesting probably for the podcast episode, but like, it is interesting, like how, how public you are with your numbers. Obviously when you're a public company, you're very public with your numbers, but it's just, it's just a funny thing. Well, yeah. And and we don't need to go down the rabbit hole on it, but I mean, it's funny because you have a lot of people that build in public and kind of take that whole approach. And, um, I don't know. It's just interesting. There's, there's pluses and minuses to both. So, so totally. what would you say is like your primary revenue go to market strategy? Yeah. So ProfitWell was very, uh, so actually Paddle and ProfitWell are very similar in this respect. That's why, you know, the integration of the merger made so much sense. So, um, we do a lot of content. It's a lot of brand building, right? Because I think we serve SaaS companies and subscription companies. And what a lot of people don't know is there's only about 150,000 SaaS and subscription companies in the entire world. Um, that includes subscription media, like newspapers, stuff like that. So it's actually a very small pool. And when you have a small pool, your go to market has to reflect that. And it's, 
you know, inside sales with, you know, higher lifetime value products, very sassy. And then uh, brand, which a lot of people mistake brand for like, you know, obviously colors and logos and stuff. Brand is really like right now it's content, it's freemium um, and a whole host of other things. So that that was our primary go to market the past uh, eight, nine years. Yeah, man, I think that's cool. We're definitely going to dig into the, the brand and content side. And, you know, you're right. There is only 150K SaaS I think globally. So, but the industry's got a lot of money there. It's exploding, uh, regardless of what's happened with the economy. So walk us through your solution. Cause I know you do really cool things with pricing. You do real things with revenue growth. Um, so walk us through what your solution is exactly. Yeah. And I'll speak, I'll speak as a combined entity because I think it's a little more interesting, but basically we exist, Paddle exists to run and grow your subscription business automatically. Um, and that automatically concept is like really, really important because I, I think where product is going and I'm happy to get into this is very much in do it for you. Right. So, you know, the first kind of wave of SaaS, the very Salesforce generation was like, I need to show my boss that I'm doing work or I need to like give someone a tool that they can log in and figure out all these workflows and emails. And I think where we're going with a lot of B2B products is no, 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 no. You just plug it in and it just does the job. Like it just takes care of it. You focus on your customer, you focus on your product, and you know, all these other ancillary things. And so what are those things? Um, so for one, we plug into Stripe, Chargebee, Zora, whatever you're using, um, or if you're using Paddle, it's built in, and we basically automate your retention and the tactical side of the retention. So obviously you need a great product team, but um, we're the best in the world at recovering failed payments. Um, we're the best in the world at cancellation flows, so reducing you know cancellations, um, term optimization, a bunch of these things. And when I say it's automated, it's not like marketing automation like HubSpot where you have to set up the emails and everything like that. Like I literally mean you just set it up and it just does its job. Um, and then we do this for billing and taxes through the paddle core billing product. We do this for pricing and optimizing your revenue per user. Um, and then ultimately the, the thing that a lot of people know us for is we give away free subscription financial metrics. So we have, uh, just over 30,000 different subscription companies using that product for free for all of their financial reporting on all of their SaaS metrics, things like that. So yeah, that's kind of a, a little bit of a laundry list rundown of what we do, but yeah, it's been it's been a good time so far. That's cool. I, I I mean, there's a lot there, and obviously, I imagine there's a ton of opportunity. Um, and I like the concept of what you're talking about, where it used to be like, hey, I, I got to show my boss what I'm doing. Um, and yeah. now it's just like, just do it for me. People are inherently trying to get lazier and lazier to the point where they just want a button and everything happens. And I think, you know, obviously, you know, it's funny. Happened, it's it's. I don't think it's even from laziness. I think we are in like, like we would rather, you know, if something can be easier, we'd rather do it. But I think it's because the market's getting so intense, right? Like it's, and it's, it's one of those things where like distribution is the hardest thing right now versus like building the product, right? Like that's flipped on these two phases of SaaS. And so what's happening is all of a sudden you're living in this market where, um, marketing is hard. Sales is hard. It used to not be, I mean, everyone, it's always difficult, right? But it used to be a lot easier. And so now you have all of those things that used to be easy, getting harder and harder. And, you know, all of these ancillary things that, yeah, maybe you would have had an expert in, you know, credit card failures previously, or you would have an expert in tax. It's like, I don't want to take care of those things, especially if they can be automated. So that's, that's kind of the interesting thing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I, I think that's a really good point because um, the demarcation for creating a product has gone down so much. So it intensifies the other areas of, the, of I guess, the life cycle, if you will. So um, let's definitely dig into that later because 
how, how about your how large is your team size uh so prior to the acquisition we were about 90 so we were bootstrapped to 90 so um that's another thing i don't know if it was mentioned yet so we were completely bootstrapped before we sold um and then now as a combined nc we're about 350 um and then paddle is uh venture backed like very traditionally venture backed um so yeah and offices prior to the acquisition and still post acquisition we have offices in boston salt lake utah and then rosario argentina um, and now we have offices additionally in london and new york so definitely a big big global team and we have a remote element too so we're just playing hard mode across the board i guess yeah you and don't you live in puerto rico as well I just moved to Puerto Rico. Yeah, I uh, that that's that's why I was a couple minutes late. I was trying to make sure I was all set up, uh, you know, and all the all the new computer setup hasn't been taken care of yet. So so fun stuff. Oh, okay. So I didn't know you just moved there. Yeah, it was on your LinkedIn profile when I was doing some research. So that's why I was like, oh, I thought you were out there for a while. So I moved uh, as I, as of January first, according to the U.S. government. That's that's when I moved. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. <laughs> Congratulations on the move and the tax benefits associated with said move. So that's um, exactly right. It's a very un, <laughs> unknown uh, thing until you're trying to uh, sell or or trying to build a build a company. So yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. Well, let's get into a little history because you know I know that just just kind of how you got here. I know you you worked at Google prior. You did some work at at multiple different companies. So I guess like the question that I think a lot of people are is like, how did you bootstrap to eight figures? And then plus, and then, you know, why did you sell? So like, could you just walk us through that journey and what happened? Because it's, it's very unique. Yeah, I think we, so my personal backgrounds in econometrics and math and my actual first job out of college, I worked for the intelligence community in DC and I, that whole background plus that first job gave me like a, a basically a very big lesson in leverage, right? Like, so leverage is, you know, how do you get the most, um, you know, least amount of work for the most amount of gain? It doesn't mean you put a lot of work into it. It just means that like, how do you get the biggest lift? Right. And so that was kind of the approach that I took to just my job and stuff like that in general. And what ended up happening is, uh, when I started profit, well, we, or when I say we, it was just me in a room for 18 hours a day. Like I knew that raising money was like a thing, but I didn't know, like I'd never done it before. And it just, it felt like that was very similar to like, uh, uh, an engineer who starts a company and you know, the path of least resistance to build a new feature. It's not to figure out marketing or sales, right? It was the same vibe. It was like, rather than going and like raising money, it was, well, why don't I build the thing, write another blog post, build another landing page, those types of things. Right. And so what ended up happening is, um, I think we got lucky where all of a sudden we started selling, um, you know, I started selling this uh, piece of software. It turned out people were like, yeah, I like the software, but can I get like service on top of it? And then, you know, I was like, oh, VCs don't like services. We can't do that. And they basically said, we'll pay you a lot of money, right? It wasn't, you know, exactly what they said, but the basic idea. And so the move was, okay, great. Well, we can, you know, essentially start paying for hiring folks, paying myself something, et cetera. And that's just kind of how it took off. And so the lesson, at least in my opinion, is if, if, if you're able to, you don't have kids, a mortgage, all these other things. Um, but you, even then, even if that you have a higher LTV or a higher kind of ARPU type product, ACV, depending on how you measure it within your business, um, you know, I do think you should basically try to bootstrap for a first year or two. Right. Um, and then once we got going, our margins were high enough that we just, we, in my proclivities for not taking money off the table were high enough that all of a sudden we just reinvested every single dollar into the business and kind of grew from there. I think the thing that we made a mistake on is 
we always had a notion of, you know, wanting to build a really big business, like a very, like go public, all those types of things. And so I think we should have raised money earlier, like, or before we sold, like we should have raised money probably when we knew profit was going to be free. Um, and that's a really big thing, right? Like you and I were talking a little bit before recording where you're, you know, your thoughts on fundraising, my thoughts on fundraising. Right. And it's like, if, if you don't want to build that big public kind of company, like you probably like don't need to, and you probably shouldn't, right? Because it just brings more headaches. Whereas if you want to do that, there's, I, I can't think of a single SaaS company and I've looked into it that has gone from 10 million to a hundred million without raising money. Right. And normally they raise it before they're 10 million. Right. Um, you know, even Atlassian, from my understanding, you know, they, they, they ended up raising, they probably didn't need to raise money, but they ended up raising money before they got to that hundred million. Um, and I think the number zero for any, when I was trying to say is the number zero for anyone who's running an inside sales model, like it, there's just none of them, um, that exist. And so that was a big thing. Um, and then why did we sell? Uh, I think selling, we needed more resources. We didn't want to sell at all. Um, and so what ended up happening is we very much were like, okay, this might be another way to get resources. And if all of these checkboxes are met, like the last thing would just be ego. And I don't know if this was a really good ego decision just not to sell. Right. And so long story short, um, it became a game of, well, let's look at all those checkboxes and all of those checkboxes got met. So again, it was like, yeah, we, we need to sell because like, we're going to take care of everybody. We got the, you know, well over the right number. We got all of these other things. And so like, let's go. Um, and that's, that's kind of what went into that calculus, if that makes sense. And one of those big checkboxes was I wasn't done. Like, I just didn't want to hand over the keys. Like I wanted to keep going. And so that was actually a really hard checkbox because what's my role? What's uh, Facundo, my business partner's role? What's Peter's role? Like my other business partner, like all of these other things. And then what's the role of our team? And we had other opportunities that might've been a bit more lucrative depending on like how the stock plays out because these were all cash and stock deals. None of them were hundred percent cash. Um, and um, though that, that opportunity, we would have just been, you know, all individual computers, con contributors, I probably would have had like a token director role or something like that. And it just wasn't interesting, um, even though it might have been or probably probably will end up being more lucrative just given given luck and things like that. Nice. That's awesome, man. Well, congrats on that. I'm sure it was a hell of a journey getting there. Yeah. Um, I guess my question for you is how long did you have to bootstrap before you sold? Uh, so we bootstrapped, we sold, actually the 10th anniversary was of the company of the first day that, that I started working on this was like a couple of weeks ago. So about 10 years, um, I think it was like nine and a half technically, like if we look okay. at when we started the the sale process or a little under nine and a half, but yeah, that was the, that was the time. And that's an, that's, it's an important question that you ask. I don't know exactly know why you're asking, but the, the one reason I think it's a really important question is it's just like time value, right? Like unless you set up your business to be kind of, I don't want to say lifestyle business because for some reason that's a negative term. I don't know why it's a negative term, but like, I, I know why, but I think it's dumb that like we can, we, we don't have another term for like, I want to set up a business where I maximize my gain and minimize the work. Like that's a great <laughs> business. Like why are we complaining about the name of that? Right. But unless you want to start that type of a business, um, there's a clock, like there's just a momentum clock. And that momentum clock is like, I, it, it's hard for founders, I would argue, to stay like excited for like 10 years or more. Right. And that's where like funding businesses, they, they kind of know that they know it's like a 10 year journey. Now, it might end up being more, it might end up being less. But like, I think that's a really important thing when you're trying to like go to the moon, like to really consider that tide.
Yeah. I, I, and I'll tell you why I'm asking that question. Cause like you hear all these crazy stories, all these overnight success stories. And then like the more oh, I've dug yeah. into them, they're not overnight. Right. Like, no. And man. so I think, and I, I could, I could relate to this man and in terms of being totally transparent, you know, with my business, I thought shit was going to happen way faster than it did. <laughs> you know what I mean? I yeah. mean, it's, it's humming, right. It's going really well right now, but like, I think, I think the market gets seduced by that and you hear about all these big VC um, investments and, you know, company goes from zero to 50 million investing in two years, but then, you know, 93% of those companies crash. So it's just a really interesting dynamic. So that's why I always ask. And it was, it's funny because I asked one of my, um, one of my other guests who he's about a hundred million now um, and Condeco software is the name of the company. Took him 10 years to bootstrap to 10 million. Then it took him five years to bootstrap, or not five years, to bootstrap. It took five years then to get to that 60 million range. And then it took him 18 months to get to the next 100 million range. So this is really interesting on the dynamics because, like, yeah, I think speed is just as important as, as the well, number. I think, you know? I think there's, there's, and you're kind of pointing this out, there, there are resilient stages and then endurance stages. And what I mean by that is, like, you're, you're talking about you're in the resilient stage, right? Like, you personally, I right. think, like, where it's like, it's a lot of this chaos where you're just like chaos norming, chaos norming, right? You're trying to do all of these different <laughs> things because you're trying to like will like something that doesn't exist into existence and get some momentum, right? And you have pure inertia when you start and then you like slowly build little cycles, right? And then I realized like regardless, like we were going to raise money this year regardless of selling or not. Like that was the intention, which, you know, thankfully we did this all early enough. I think the the, the sale like kind of got co-opted by like just asking for advice. We probably weren't going to raise money until Q2, Q3, which judging by this market would have been a like terrible timing. Right. Oh yeah. Um, but long story short, I think that like we knew we were heading into an endurance stage and when you're in an endurance stage, you have to, at least in my opinion, take some of these like headaches off. Right. You got to stop having $10,000 like arguments, right? Because at, at a certain size, it might be a thousand dollars depending on your, your business size, right? You have to stop like, paying people so low, like under like where the market is because like that momentum of the dream, like they're not seeing it. Right. You know, because the stages are so different. Right. And so there's just a bunch of things you have to do. And I, I think it's really important to understand one, what you want as, as a leader. And then two, like understand where your team is at, you know, in that particular life cycle. Yeah. I, I love the way you put that, the endurance stage versus the resilient stage. Like I've never heard yeah. it explained that way, but that's a really good, like, that's that's good words great yeah. good words like I, I sometimes do good with the words yeah 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 good word um so so let's get a little bit into your your um your go to market and I, I want to talk about your solution as well and integrate that in there but I think it was really unique sure. that you said you led with brand and you led with content slash and it sounds like inside sales right so that kind of combo yeah is, is what you're doing so walk us through that man and and exactly how you make that a reality. Cause that, I mean, that's how I did find you as a guest. I just, I'm like, Hey, this guy's got some pretty cool content. I looked up more and I'm like, he's got a legit company. And I think we started talking before the actual sales went through. <clears throat> so I'm like, yep. I'd love to have you on the show and just kind of see what you're doing. So walk us through that exactly. Yeah. So from a go to market perspective, um, there were, there were kind of like probably three fundamental layers. Um, one layer was inside sales, very traditional, right? Like the minute you're selling something for, I don't know, 500 bucks a month, probably a thousand bucks a month at this point, like just given where salaries are and stuff like that. Um, inside sales is great. 
And what I love about inside sales is, is you struggle with it in the beginning, even if you have experience as an inside sales leader or you have an inside sales leader, because again, you're just implementing stuff. But you take 100 B2B companies, uh, you know, who are selling uh, products of that stature, 99 of them, you know, figured out inside sales. It might have taken them too long. It might have taken them forever. But like, it's one of those things that's like very well known. And if you iterate enough, like it works. Right. Um, and so that was the first layer. I think that um, we were pretty unique in how we ran our BDR core because I think where BDR's uh, kind of implementation goes wrong and I am not an inside sales leader, so I want to be careful here or you should, you know, take take my uh, feedback with that context is um, they just expect 22 year olds, mostly 22 to 25 year olds, just to instantly know how to talk to VPs and C-levels, right? Like it's so freaking annoying, right? Just look at your inbox. Like everyone listening to this has an inbox full of BDRs and they're terrible, terrible. And then you talk to inside sales leaders and you're like, great, like what's your strategy around this? They're like, well, we're just gonna hire 50 knowing that we're gonna fire 25 and the other 25 are just gonna like figure it out. It's like, it's like Darwinism, like sales Darwinism. Like it doesn't make any sense to me because it's so expensive to hire those 25. And then the morale of that company is not high performance. The morale of that company is, well, so-and-so is political. They have this manager. They end up staying even though they're shit at the numbers and so on and so forth. And so what we did, again, very being very bootstrapped and thinking of this from first principles is all messaging was run through the growth team, meaning they controlled. And we basically did version control on messaging, which what I mean by that is there was a core message and it was broken out by like persona and segment, all that kind of fun stuff. And you were not allowed as a BDR to change that messaging at all. But we had a mm. system where if you thought you could do better, you would go to the growth team and like saw asynchronously and say, Hey, I'm going to test this for the next two weeks. And the growth team would be like, great. And then if it works, you got a spiff and we merged the change that you made to the core segment. So all of the BDRs basically benefit. And if it didn't work, no harm, no foul. It was your number. And you basically, you know, theoretically it wouldn't be disastrous, but long story short, that was a big thing. And then also we like really thought through every single touch point because the growth team was developing like what those looked like. And that was a really big mistake. I saw a lot of companies do, and we were really successful to give you context. And I know there's a lot of rev leaders that listen to this. Um, our cold outreach to an account to call rate on outbound was 18%. So we reach out to a hundred accounts. Um, we will get 18 of them on the phone within six weeks. Um, and so like, from my understanding, that's pretty freaking high. Right. Um, and then the long tail will, will kind of tick that up. And, um, right before the sale, like we figured this out really like a year, like we were figuring this out 18 months before we ended up selling. And so we were right about to triple the team because we kind of had, we had started with one, then we had three, then we had five. And then we were like, great, let's get 15 because we kind of have seen this not break. Um, so that was a big thing. Um, content, that was a second big layer that came from basically understanding that, um, traditional inbound marketing and it's really inbound media. That's kind of the phrase that we kind of coined and HubSpot's using now. Um, we're basically traditional content marketing is just SEO right now. It's just like SEO plus an offer of some kind. So what we kind of looked at was media companies are the best in the world at basically getting audience. They're the worst the world in monetizing audience. And obviously SaaS companies are really, really good at monetizing traffic. 
And I have a bunch of data on this I'm happy to get into, but to make a long story short, we basically said, well, what if we were a media company selling software, right? It's kind of what Bloomberg did, right? That's like the old Bloomberg mm-hmm. model and selling hardware. Um, and so we started with just doing video on top of our written content, which we already had done really well with. And now we're at eight different podcasts and video series shows that build audience. And it's not like we're Mr. Beast or some YouTuber, right? With just crazy audiences. But what we're able to do is like the way I like try to convince people that this was actually a smart move. And hopefully you're hearing like, this isn't like a vanity exercise. This is a numbers based thing that we did. But the way I talk about this with people is like, imagine if you had 5,000 of your perfect target leads coming to a webinar every single week. Like we would, we would do that all day. Right. But instead we fixate on, Oh, this video didn't get a million views. It's like, well, if there's 150,000 total Tam and really that's probably being generous, like of logos, like you're not going to get a million people like to watch something every week. Right. It's just not going to happen. And so, but I can get like a million dollars in pipeline to watch it every week. Right. And so, um, yeah, it's interesting. And then the third layer, which is interesting is, um, we, we ran a freemium model with, um, the metrics product, which is kind of like content, right? Because it wasn't like there's a, there isn't a premium version of metrics that we sell. We give away the metrics for free. And then that gives us a network effect on data rather than leads. Like we do get leads and heavy word of mouth. Um, but then all of a sudden we sell them all these other tangential products on top of it. And so those are the three big things for go to market. And then paddle is pretty much the same, right? Um, they don't have a freemium offering for their billing product, but they now have profitable metrics, which is a free, you know, very freemium product that we can sell billing into. But yeah, that's, that's the style. If that makes sense. That's awesome, man. I love it. It's very well engineered with, with kind of how you crafted that. Have you, have you systemized customer to prospect referrals? Uh, no, we haven't systematized, systemized it. I think that that's a big thing that we knew. So for price intelligently, that product, we've been talking about pricing and doing pricing work for people for like 10 years now. We get so much inbound. Like I think 80% of our dollars come from inbound, which is crazy. So we, we weren't even developing outbound for that product um, that much. Um, but our referral system was so good that we it was just kind of something that was always put on the back burner. But it's kind of sad, right? Because that was one of those things that we probably should have amplified because you want to take your strengths and make them even stronger. And, and you know that was one that we always put on the back burner. Hmm. Okay. And that's typical. You know, um, yeah. it's actually one of the things that I help companies with is because I, um, I, I used to do that because we didn't have any SDRs or marketing or anything. And so mm. we had to get really creative with how we did it. So we leveraged referrals and it actually enabled us to get a $20 million deal from Amazon. So I'm like, hey, there's something here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, but let's let's dig a little bit deeper on the the content layer piece um, with the inbound media. So like. SDRs, BDRs, I get that. And I, and I think you had some great points in there. And so I don't want to gloss over that. It's just that's more commonly talked about. So yeah. when we talk about the content layer, though, like how do you weaponize that? How do you, you know, tactically put that together? Yeah. So I, I wrote a really long, well, I wrote an internal memo about now five, six years ago because it was what happened was, is I was writing blog posts like twice a week and that was bringing in the traffic. This was like the pre podcast stage. I think now if it was, I'd start a podcast. Right. But I was writing blog posts twice a week. And, um, 
we hadn't, we hadn't had a marketing hire in the first couple number of years in the business. And so like, great, I'm going to hire the next marketing hire, the first marketing hire. What's that marketing team look like, right? Is it more paid? Is it more whatever? So this, this is what kicked off this research and, and the memo still holds true. The data is probably a little bit different now, but the long and short of it was, um, what we wanted to figure out was like, how did we actually structure this? Why did we go after it, et cetera. And I'm, missing your original question now that I gave that explanation. But the basic idea is, is that we wanted to make sure that we focused either on personas that we were targeting or we were targeting the need or the pain point that we were solving, right? So one of the first shows we developed was something called Pricing Page Teardown. And we still have it. They're in season. There are 60 to 75,000 people per month that look at that show when it's in season, which is insane to think about. But basically what we ended up doing is we ended up saying, like, all it is is me and uh, one of my co-founders going in front of a pricing page and tearing it down. And we collect a bunch of data and we say, this, this is what they did well, this is what they did not so well, so on and so forth. Um, and it's just like 10 minutes typically max, but it's video and then there's a written, you know, a written kind of version of it that comes out. And all of a sudden, if you're thinking about pricing, if you're one of the competitors of the product, if you're in a similar industry of the product that we're talking about, if you are the company that we're talking about, all of that inbound comes in basically and we end up talking to a certain portion of those folks, right? And so it's, it, it gets interesting because then we developed, we call this very middle of the funnel content because, or bottom of the top of the funnel, we call it, which is like, if you're not searching for pricing, or you don't really care about pricing. Like you're not watching the show. You might think it's novel and interesting, but it's not really like that interesting to watch. And then the persona type content, like I have a podcast called protect the hustle, which is I interview folks and it's kind of like creating field guides for, you know, operators in the B2B SaaS world. Right. So I talked to Brian Halligan about, you know, the SaaS operating system of a business, right? And how they think about operations, right? And now you have a field guy. I talked to, you know, the best word of mouth person in the world about word of mouth, right? Those types of things. And so the long and short of it is making sure that, you know, we take the time to kind of develop that content for the goal, right? It's not just like, well, let's just start a podcast. Like, well, what should it be? Let's just interview people, right? Like it has an actual specific thesis and a goal. And then you know, we have eight shows now, um, that, that all kind of run the gambit depending on, um, depending on the need or the persona, basically. That's awesome, man. I love that. And I, I mean, I've, I can't tell you how impactful having a podcast has been for me yeah. just from the, the people you have to the partnerships you create to the value they create for others. It's, I, I think it's amazing. And, um, it's really fun. It, you start repurposing it and blow things up. So, um, so let's talk about your, and I know we're getting short on time, but I really want to understand like your solution a little bit deeper with, you know, how do you improve pricing? Mm. What does that look like? I mean, cause it's like, you know, to someone who isn't deep in your solution, you know, the core question is like, okay, well, it sounds like voodoo magic with what you're doing, right? You're improving pricing, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're reducing, you know, you're growing revenue. It's like, how do you guys do that? Like, like yeah. what leads to those results? And then can you give some example of some results you've created for people in terms of like metrics? You don't have to give the name, obviously, mm. but just just so, yeah. you know, the listener, if they want to learn more about you and your company and leveraging you, like what that totally. would look like for them. Yeah. So let me let me back up. And what I'll do is I'll give a little bit of like how to think about pricing inside a business. Cause I find a lot of people that that's where they mess up first. And then I'll give a little bit of like the framework and then a bunch of tactics. Right. Okay. Cause I think that'll be a good mix cool. to kind of take away from, you know, a podcast. Um, so first off, I think that the, the way to think about pricing is anything that improves your revenue per customer. 
So ARPU, ACV, doesn't really matter how you're measuring. Like you should measure it the right way for the type of business you have. But um, anything that improves revenue per customer. Now, you might be thinking like, okay, like, well, what are all those levers? Well, if you start to really spend some time thinking on it, there's a ton of levers. There's obviously raising the price, right? You know, you can just straight up raise your prices and that'll improve revenue per customer, right? But there's moving up market, right? Okay, I get more bigger customers, less smaller customers, right? All of a sudden, my revenue per customer goes up. There's um, cutting my discounting strategy. Great, my discounts get cut in half, my revenue per customer goes up. There's adding add-ons, right? Like that's one of the most underutilized aspects of any B2B SaaS pricing, our add-on strategy, right? I take a feature that only 20% of people are using inside a particular tier anyways, I bust it out and I put it on the other side, and all of a sudden I start charging you know, 100 bucks a month in addition to the core product, and all of a sudden my revenue per customer goes up, right? There's using a value metric, like making sure that the way you charge, like, oh, they get 100 visits per this tier, now they're only gonna get 50 visits, my revenue per customer goes up because people upgrade, right? So there's all these different things that you can use for revenue per customer to go up. And the theory behind what you should be doing with pricing is what's called value-based pricing, which it's not cost plus because B2B SaaS or technology companies, your costs versus the value providing are so out of whack. Salesforce average cost per user is like single digits, low double digits. ARPU is probably close to, I think it's 120, 130 per month, right? So like even Mark Benioff is not arrogant enough to have that type of a margin if he's doing cost plus margin or pricing, right? Competitive-based pricing, like I can guarantee you there are only about 10, 20% of companies actually doing pricing research and taking it seriously. When you're doing competitive based pricing, I guarantee you you're copying the dumb kid in class. Like that's what you're doing. You're basically saying, I'm going to cheat off the kid who isn't doing the right thing and I'm going to copy what they're doing, right? You're both going to get low scores, right? And I think the funny thing is, is like, when it comes to pricing and competitive based pricing, you're also assuming like we always as founders or leaders, we over assume how comparative we are to our competitors, right? Like we think, oh my God, every deal they're thinking about this other competitor. Most products, they've never even heard of the competitor. You're competing against, I don't know, paper and pencil, a spreadsheet, something like depending on the type of product you changed, are. In addition right? to that, like, yeah, just change like, like not using your solution, right? And I think that unless you have half half that high of every single deal they bring up the other competitor that shouldn't be a huge input into your pricing um and you're also assuming you're selling the same product to the exact same type of customer and salesforce and even hubspot crm not selling the same customer they definitely are the competitor right um so value-based pricing, what it is, is it comes down to customer research, which ever, this is where I lose everybody because they're like, oh my God, I have to do a little bit of work in order to understand how much money I should charge someone. Oh my God, can't you just give me a magic formula? And it's like, no, but I can give you like, go talk to like 15 people in this manner and then go do this analysis over across 200 people and magically you will have perfect pricing. But, you know, no one wants to do the work. And so it's it's understanding the customer, collecting data from them, both qualitatively and quantitatively and studying your data to come up with value-based pricing, right? And I'm not going to have time to go through all the depth there, but here are some tactics, right? A lot of revenue leaders listen to this. First thing to do, cut your discounting in half. I, I know your sales leader, or maybe you are going to complain about it. 
I can guarantee you, I have the data. I can guarantee you your discounts are too high. And I have data from 30,000 different companies. Like I guarantee your data, your, your discounts are way too high. And the reason is, is because like you set it in a vacuum. You're like, well, what should our discounting authority be? Well, I think like maybe it's like 5% they can do on their own. 10% they have to go get this person's approval and 20% this person's approval. And it's like, you, you didn't do any analysis, right? You didn't analyze anything. And I, and I can tell you, Every single time someone, I shouldn't say every single time because I don't know the totality, but every single time I've been involved in cutting discounts in half, which is probably about 150 or so at this point, and we've had about a thousand probably pricing customers over the years here, every single time we, I've cut discounts in half um, with a company, nothing changes except the ARPU goes up. Absolutely nothing. Sales conversion volume stays the same. The reps bitch and moan. Don't get me wrong. Reps are going to piss and moan about it because they're like, well, if I just had an extra 5%, which it doesn't make any sense. Like if I just had an extra 5%, it's going to get them over the line, right? Discounting doesn't really move the needle until it's like very high volume uh, or it's like a massive discount. And then massive discounts, all that ends up happening. And I have the data on this is if you're in a B2B inside sales motions, a massive discount will show up in your retention. Basically, you praise the VP of sales or whoever for like getting you over the line when your your revenue to goal looks like that at the end of the quarter because all the discounting came into play. And then all of a sudden your customer success leader goes, oh crap, I can't renew this person. We blame the customer success leader. In reality, it was just a customer that wasn't ready for the actual product. So that's mm-hmm. one one thing. I, 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 I diatribed about one thing. Uh, localization, um, your customers in different countries, not only do they want to see their current symbol, they are willing to pay different amounts. Nordics are 30% higher than the US. Brazil's about 20% lower than the US. Um, The variance is very high depending on the product. That's another place to look. A couple of other tactics, add-ons I kind of mentioned. Take a feature that's being used by less than 40% of the segment, so either the tier or the entire customer base. That's a really good candidate to pull out and make it into its own um, own like skew. That's an add-on. Um, one of the easiest ones for anyone listening, um, priority support. I guarantee you 20% of your base is willing to pay just to have their email or phone call answered first. You don't have to change anything else about your support except that. Priority support is a big one. Um, Add-ons, and then look at your value metrics. That's a huge lever because it pays dividends. Just make sure the amount you're giving away um, is, is, you know, basically at the 90% mark of that tier. So 90% of people are under that particular mark because you kind of want 10%, maybe 5% of people upgrading every single quarter, every single month, that type of a thing. Um, but yeah, those are a couple levers and, and a couple theories. But uh, yeah, Ryan, you just put a quarter in me and I was just like, ah, pricing. Oh, here's all the things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, dude, I could put another dollar uh, fifty in, but we're running out of time. There we you go. know what I mean? Like, I got gotcha. you. You're dropping some bombs here and at the end and I feel bad because we're, we're just about up on time. So, all good, um, but that, I mean, that's great. I mean, all that is super measurable and specific, you know, from the localization, I, I'm the feature, right. Putting that behind a wall, bumping, using that as a bump. That's, I mean, it's so funny. That's a core strategy. Just like you have at the grocery store where it's like, Oh, well you, do you want candy and mints with that? Right. At the checkout. Yeah, line. Yeah, it's like yeah, the yeah. same kind of concept. So, um, so, yeah, and then the value metrics, I, I think, yeah, just a lot of great details, man. So where can people find you? Where can they learn more about you and ProfitWall and Paddle? Um, and we'll take it from there. 
Yeah, totally. So I'm just uh, Patrick Campbell on LinkedIn. Um, do not send me LinkedIn messages. I'm sorry. That it's just a cesspool that I don't manage. But um, you can send me uh, emails at pc at profitwell.com or pc at paddle.com if you just remember one of the names. Um, I'm pretty responsive. I mean, it might take me a little while to get back to you, but I'm always here to help. We publish so much stuff on the topics I'm talking about. And so feel free to ship, the, ship that over. There's always like a blog post I can send you, or at least I know where to look. Um, yeah. And I'm Paticus on Twitter. It's a childhood nickname. Um, so yeah, those, those are all the places. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for being on the show. It was a lot of fun and, uh, I wish we had more time cause there's, I, I, we, we cover so much more. So, um, yeah. but it was awesome having you on. Congrats on bootstrapping to where you are and then doing that strategic sell. It sounds like everything's going great. Um, and so thanks for being on, man. Absolutely, man. Thanks, brother. Appreciate all it. All right. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for checking out The Scale Up Show. My mission in life is to help founders and revenue leaders avoid all the pain and suffering in revenue growth so they can flip it and create a life of their own design. So if you enjoyed this show, please like, review, share it on social, and more importantly, just share it with a friend. Share it with someone that you think could learn and benefit from what you heard on today. But the more we get the message out, the more people we could help, the bigger the impact we make, and the bigger the community gets, which helps everybody. So once again, thank you for being a loyal listener. I appreciate you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.